2 Corinthians chapter 13. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, put a hand there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, put a hand there. And when you find those places, raise your hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, I don't know if you overdid it at the meal table. But I'll find out when your eyes start to <laughs> or your head starts to melt. And, and I'm not sure if it's harder to preach before dinner or after dinner. You know, before dinner, everybody wants you to finish eating to eat. After dinner, they don't care <laughs> about anything. <laughs> it's by my word. But uh, you ladies ought to write, do yourself practice in that case, there too. Um, First Corinthians chapter 1, stand with me please if you're able to in reverence to the public reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul introduces both epistles and he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now don't ask me what in the world that mother was thinking when she named that poor kid Sosthenes. Can you imagine being a child having to go to school with a name like that? You'd never live it down. Anyway, then in verse 2, he tells us who he writes these epistles to. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. A church of God in the Bible is not a denomination. That denominational name was not picked up and used until the early 19th century. Had nothing to do with a denomination. He's writing to a church in Corinth that belongs to God. Pretty simple. Uh, and since he's writing to a local church, he's ultimately, logically, writing to all local churches, believing churches. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, you're sanctified. Uh, sanctification in the Bible means set apart. There was a sense in which you had been sanctified. God set you apart for him. There's a sense in which you are being sanctified as you study the word and pray and live for the Lord. He sets you apart from sin in your life. There's also a sense in which you're one day going to be sanctified entirely, and that's when Jesus comes. We're going to be with him. Then we'll be completely set apart. You can look at it like this. Um, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification. I am being saved from the power of sin. Am being saved from the power of sin, that's sanctification. Uh, I one day will be saved from the very presence of sin, and that's uh, glorification. Anyway, you can preach that, you fellas, you ladies, leave it alone. Uh, under the church of God, which is that called to them that are sanctified, in Christ Jesus, if you're saved, you're in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. If you're saved, you're a saint. You might not act saintly sometimes, but you're a saint. You don't have to be, you don't have to be dubbed by somebody as a saint 300 plus years after you've died in order to be a saint. If you're saved, Bible language, you're a saint. You might not act like one sometimes, but if you're saved, you're a saint. So he's writing to those who are called to be saints with all, and if you're here, that's part of, that's you if you're a part of all, that in every place, if Tifa Heights is a place, 
the first Jew too. But on the way up here, three times I heard a woman, the one inside that GPS, tell me how to get to Crystal Heights Baptist Church. <laughs> Obviously, she's never attended here. Um, with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both as and I. So the Apostle Paul writes, First and Second Corinthians, locally to the church, ultimately to all churches, and to everybody who would ever be saved from that point on. That means you and me as well. Now, you can let that go. Turn to Second Corinthians. Among many other things, here's what Paul wrote to that church, to this church, and to everybody who would ever be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves. Now, if you'll, if you'll go back, and don't do it now, but if you'll go to uh, the last few verses in Psalm 26 and the first few verses in Psalm 129, I believe it is, uh, you'll find that we're told to examine ourselves to see what kind of a Christian we are. But in this passage, it's not an examination to see what kind of a Christian you are. It's an examination to find out if you are a Christian. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. And then he said, prove. Ah, so it is possible to know. Prove your own self. Uh, if you and I were writing that, and we, you know, just were expressing it in our own language, we would probably say something like, it'd be good for you every now and again to go to the closet, open the door, drag out your personal salvation experience testimony, and examine it, just to make sure the devil didn't slip you a mickey, because he's a master at that. He is the, there's only one thing that, that uh, has ever been created only one thing that is more deceitful than the devil, and that's the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Isaiah said. Uh, so he tells us here that we are to examine ourselves. Ever not again, not to doubt, but to keep from doubting to see whether or not you're saved, whether ye be in the faith. Heavenly Father, I pray thy blessing. On the preaching time this afternoon. We need your help, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I want to preach this afternoon for a short while, haha, uh -huh, on six tests of your salvation. At the moment, I'm going to give you a six question examination. I'm not going to ask you to answer it from me, but it would be good for you to write it down. Now, this examination, we're going to give you six ways to test your salvation. And again, I stress, uh, it's not to get you to doubt it, it's to get you to overcome doubt. Now, I've been saved for 66 years. I don't know many people, I can count them all on one hand, who have ever told me, since I've been saved, I've never doubted my salvation. Almost everybody, somewhere down the line, experiences a doubt here or there. It might be just a satanic attack. It might just be that they're questioning. You know, a lot of people think if you didn't have the same experience that this guy had, you're not saved. Baloney. I know two experiences of life. The only thing that is a life is you have to believe. You have to trust Christ. 
just trust him. Uh, so what, I, what I'm going to get you is not to get you to doubt, it's to get you to overcome your doubt. Now you say, preacher, I don't, I don't have doubts. I've just never been plagued by doubts. Okay, then you witness to people. And as you witness, you'll run across many who do have doubts, and they need to know how to overcome the doubts. And if you don't have the ammunition, you can't help it. So I'd suggest that you write these things down, even somehow get them inside your Bible or New Testament that you use when you go soul winning. If you're saved and doubts come, they'll usually come for one of four reasons. There are four things primarily that could cause doubts. Number one, sin in the life. If you harbor known sin in your heart and life, you're going to have doubts. You know it's there, you refuse to deal with it. You're going to have doubts. It'll weaken the spiritual side of you. You're going to have doubts. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, I quoted it this morning. Uh, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, and ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Listen to me carefully. If you cannot get your prayers heard and answered, you're going to have doubts. And if you harbor sin in your heart, it will weaken you to the point where it will weaken your faith. And you will, I'm not talking about if you get rid of all sin. Nobody's ever done that, I'm sorry to say. Nobody ever will do all that until we get to heaven. What I am saying is if you harbor known sin in your heart, it will cause you to doubt. It'll come because it'll get you away from the Lord. So sin in the life causes doubts. There's another thing that causes doubts, and that's a neglect of personal daily Bible study. And I'm emphasizing personal, because I'm not talking about when you study a Sunday school lesson or a sermon. And I'm saying daily because you should, you should spend some time in the Word of God every day. Uh, but if you, if you neglect the Bible, you're going to have doubts. Why? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the Word of God. Now, you'll notice Paul did not say faith comes by hearing the Word of God. You know what he said? If that were the case, all you'd have to do would be turn on the Alexander Scorby tapes and listen to the Bible all day long and you'd, be the, you'd have the strongest faith of anybody in the, in the world. What he said was faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. It's hearing that comes by the Word of God. You say, preacher, hearing what? No, hearing who? Ask your question, who's the author of that book? Nail it down, specific. Who's the author? Yeah, God is the Holy Spirit, right? The Bible says in, in 2 Peter 1.20, Holy men of God spake or wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the author of that book. As you read this Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and gives you the assurance of salvation. Therefore, a neglect of the Bible will cause you to doubt. It's not those who study the Bible systematically and diligently every day that die. It's those who neglect it. Or those who treat it like the lucky dip method, you know, a 
verse here today and a verse there tomorrow. So sin in the life will cause doubts. Neglect of the Bible will cause doubts. Here's a third thing that could very easily cause doubts. An unwillingness to be active, I'm talking to the saints, an unwillingness to be actively involved in Christian service. That could be witnessing. It might not be teaching a Sunday school class or driving a bus or singing a special or even leading the singing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be real frank with you. It's all right, isn't it? I mean, I'm leaving shortly anyway. Um, some people shouldn't sing. Not in public anyway. They tell me when I sing, heaven flies this flag at half mass, the angels fold their wings, cover their face, and weep. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. Probably pretty close. But the fact is, let's talk about public service. If you're, if as a Christian, you're not willing to actively serve the Lord in whatever capacity you're able to, you'll have doubts. At least it'll set you up for doubts. Let me tell you why. In the physical realm, it's not eating that makes you strong. In the physical world, if all you do is sit at the table and shovel it in, you don't get strong, you get obese. I'm going to talk about it because I won't miss flat facts. It's when you go out and burn up what you've taken in. That's when you get strong. I mean, you know, have you ever heard have you ever heard these health gurus say no pain, no gain? The same is true in the Christian uh, experience. That is in Christian service. Uh, and by the way, by the way, I'm just going to add this. It's all right, I suppose. I'm 76. I'm going to be 77 in November. I can still stand in front of the mirror and flex my muscle. I still got one. Now it's on this side now. And it wobbles a lot more than it used to. <laughs> but it's still there somewhere. <laughs> uh, now, the truth of the matter is, if in the Christian life, if all you do is sit here in the pew, take it in, 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 and you're not willing to serve somehow, even if it's just leave a track here and there when you pour out the wheat, or testify somehow, if, you're, if, if there's an unwillingness to serve God and use what the pastor has fed you. You're going to have doubts because you'll be a weak Christian. Now, if sin is not your problem and, uh, and you're actively involved in a daily diligent program of Bible study and you're actively involved in Christian service and everything else seems to fall in line, but you're still plagued constantly constantly with doubts. And may I say that safe is better than sorry. We're talking about your never dying soul, heaven and hell. It's possible. It's possible that a person like that has just never been saved. I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I can't tell you. Nobody else can. You know, but years ago, my wife, I was pastoring a church. She had been a soul winner. Uh, before we met, a, a, a soul-winning preacher entered her house and quote-unquote led her to Jesus Christ. Went through the plan of salvation. She went through the prayer. She began, she began uh, teaching a Sunday school class. Was a very successful bus captain. 
uh, on a bus ride to the church, she uh, she was well, she married a preacher. This one here, and uh, she was the pastor's wife. She was a she was a student of the Word of God. Every day she studied the Bible. She she memorized scripture verses, literally scores of them, and reviewed them every day for months. I mean, she 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 was a soul winner. But one day she began. I was pastoring in Lafayette, Georgia. No, no, not far from where are you? There you are. Not far from where your son is. And uh, she she came to me and she said, shed tears. I'm just not sure that I'm saved. And I would do like most of you would have done. I'd I'd go to the Roman road, you know, that infamous street in Rome. And I and I I said, Have you done this, this, and this? She said, I think so. And I'd say, Honey, you're all right. Shut up and go to sleep. I mean, I try to be nice to my wife, you know. I, they always come at night. Don't ask me why. Uh, but it didn't satisfy her. Then one day we had a revival meeting in our church, and the evangelist, Dick Seaton, was standing behind the pulpit holding the invitation, and I was standing beside him to receive any who came forward who wanted to be prayed for. And my wife, who cannot run, she has a very difficult time just walking. She literally leapfrogged out into the aisle, began to wave her hands, tears were gushing down her cheeks, and as she ran down to the aisle, she cried out, I'm not saved! And she dropped on her knees right there, gave her heart to Christ. Hey, what I'm saying is, if, 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 if sin is not your problem, a neglect of the Bible is not your problem, a, an unwillingness to actively serve the Lord is not your problem, then check it out. Safe is better than sorry. We're talking about heaven versus the devil's hell for eternity. You're never dying soul. Now, if you do have doubts, or if you know others who have doubts, if you'll ask and answer these six questions, it'll help you to overcome the doubts. I promise. I promise. It'll help you to get it nailed down and determine, am I saved or not? Now, if you don't have the problem, hallelujah. You know people who do. And you need to know how to help them. So I'm going to give you six questions to ask. I'll give you the Bible answers as well. Now listen to me carefully. Question one is a proof of, of whether or not you're saved. Question six is also a proof. Sandwiched in between questions two, three, four, and five are not proofs. But they're evidence. We've sandwiched them that way on purpose. Make a big, you know, what they call a club sandwich out of it. Uh, question one and six are proofs. Questions two, three, or five, uh, and four, two, three, four, and five are evidence. Now, you, evidence is not proof. Can't hang a guy on evidence. You're not supposed to. But it is helpful. It's corroborated. So we'll use them. Question one. Remember, this one's a proof. If you doubt your salvation, ask yourself, how did I get saved to begin with? I'm going to go back in your mind's eye. This will help you assurance-wise. How did I get saved to begin with? We were discussing earlier, you don't get saved by turning from sin. That's works. 
What did I do? How did I get saved? Go back in your minds and ask yourself, did I trust? Did I place my faith and trust and the keeping of my eternal soul to Jesus Christ? Did I trust Him? Did I place my faith in Him? Did it should I say? There's only one place in the Bible where the question is asked, what must I do to be saved? And that was the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. He asked Paul in silence, what must I do to be saved? And the answer they gave was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the way through the Bible, you'll find out that it's belief that saves, it's unbelief that damns or condemns to hell. And by the way, just to repeat what you and I were talking about, if that's the case, then it's not repentance of sin that saves, because not sin that sends you to hell, it's unbelief. When you get saved, you change your mind about your unbelief and decide to believe. That's about as simple as, uh, uh, as I know how to make it. It's about as complex as I know how to make it, too. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. However, it's not the calling that saves. Read the previous verses and the following verses. It's the faith that motivates the calling. That's it. You'll find very few people, if any, in all of the Bible who even prayed when they got saved. It's not the act of praying that say, oh yeah, I prayed. Well, it's not praying that saved. Is trusting. The question is not, did you pray and ask? The question is, did you trust Jesus Christ? Did you place your faith in Him? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be so ask yourself the question. We won't believe at that point. I think that's pretty well down path. Ask yourself the question, what did I do to get saved? And your answer to that should answer, should answer your question, am I saved or not? Question number two. Question two is, is not a proof, it's an evidence. If you doubt your salvation, ask yourself this question. Do I love the church? Do I love the church? As a preacher, I thought the church didn't save. You're exactly right. However, your attitude toward the church is highly indicative of your attitude toward Jesus Christ. I'll prove that to you. While you turn to Acts chapter 8, now I remind you that the word church is used in the Bible 112 times about this right here, a local church. At least 112 times. The Bible says that God created three institutions on earth. He created the home, Adam and Eve, marriage. He created government, Genesis 9. And he created the local church, New Testament. Not one place does the Bible say that Jesus Christ loved the home and died for it. Let's say that. Not one place does the Bible say that Jesus Christ loved government and died for it. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's what it says. However, in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Hey, if Jesus loved it enough to die for it, 
I should love it enough to live for it, don't you think? Hebrews 10.25 Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That word assembly is ecclesia, same word translated church 112 times in the Bible. Now, I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 8. And uh, Saul of Tarsus is introduced to us in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. To be real frank with you, they didn't stone Stephen to death. They just rocked him to sleep. One laugh. That's not bad out of a crowd this size. Um, in Acts chapter 8, the Bible says Saul was consenting unto his death, giving permission. Saul, member of the Sanhedrin, would give permission for them to execute Stephen. And at that time, there was great persecution against, one of the next two words, class, the church. Who did Saul persecute? The church. All right? Drop down to verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc. That word means to tear apart like a wild beast with his prey. Saul made havoc of what? The church. Yeah. So who did Saul persecute? The church. Do you realize Saul never persecuted Jesus? They never met. You can't persecute somebody you've never met. But look down in chapter 9 of Acts. And Saul is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute believers, arrest them, imprison them. And the Bible says the great light shined out of heaven that outshined the Palestinian sun knocked him off his donkey on the Damascus turnpike. And verse 4, it says, He, Saul, fell to the earth. And I heard a voice saying to him, this is Jesus Christ, by the way, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou the church? Is that what he said? No. He said, why persecutest thou me? Look at the next verse. He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But wait a minute. Saul hadn't persecuted Jesus. Saul had persecuted the church. Why did Jesus say to Saul, who had persecuted the church, Why have you persecuted me? Why did he say that? Because your attitude toward the church, Jesus takes person. So do I love the church is not a proof of your salvation. Well, it's pretty good evidence. I'm, I'm going to confess a sin to you. You don't mind, do you? I'm going to confess to you. I'm worried. I'm sorry, but I'm worried. I'm worried stiff. By this crowd says, I, I'm saved. I'm saved. By the Lord. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But you can, you, you look for them on Sunday morning. The FBI couldn't find them. Something wrong with that. Something definitely wrong with the person who says, I love Jesus Christ, I'm saved, but their attitude toward the church is they can take it or leave it. It's back burner, if even that. Sort of like the guy who said, oh, preacher, uh, you know, my beer, I can take it or leave it. The problem is they never leave it. They always take it. Well, what's your attitude toward the church? If you doubt your salvation, what's your attitude toward the church? That's not a proof, but it's an evidence. And it ought to co help corroborate. Third question, also an evidence. Do I love the saved? Do I love other Christians? Oh, you say, preacher, I thought the church is the saved. Well, in a, in, a, in a very strong sense, that's true. The church is not the building. 
The church is not the property. The church is not what's written on the sign out front. The church is the people. The people. However, when we talk about the church corporate, we're talking about the people. When we talk about the saints individually, we're talking about individual believers. So go beyond, do I love the church? And ask yourself, do I love the saved? Not, not, not do I tolerate them. Not do I put up with them. Do I love the saved? Listen to John chapter 13. You might want to turn there. John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, A new commandment I give unto you. Now, this is not new. That's not new in the sense that it's never been given. It had been given many times. It's not new in the sense they'd never heard it. They'd heard it many times. It's new in the sense that they've never obeyed it before. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, and here it is, that you love, by the way, that's the word I got there, with a God-divine love, that you love one another. And I'm talking about loving the unsaved. That you love one another, you're talking about the saved. I'm commanding you to love. It doesn't say tolerate. It doesn't say put up with. It doesn't just, he said, love them. That you love one another. How much, Jesus, do we have to love one another as I've loved you? Oh, boy. Pretty tall order, huh? But keep in mind, God never gives commandments without enablements. God never gives a command, but what he also gives the ability to carry out that command. And then he said, by this, not by how often you go to church, not in this passage, not by how big a King James Bible do you carry, not by, he said, by this, by your love for one another, shall all men know that you're man. I, I told you this morning, I preached all over this country over the years, and I have. I'll guarantee you what our, I'm told our, our churches, independent, fundamental, temperamental Baptist churches, need more than anything else in the world is an old-fashioned baptism of Holy Ghost love for one another. And I don't mean the kind that hugs your neck on Sunday and then stabs you in the back on Monday either. Nor am I talking about the kind that says, God bless you, brother. I'll pray for you in your need when you got something back here to read. By this shall all men know that you might have You know, uh, we go out so many. And we can knock on doors. And we tell people how to be saved. In essence, we don't use these words, but in essence what we tell them is, we are followers of Jesus Christ. We're his disciples. We would like for you to be one. And we tell them how to be saved. However, there's another group goes out and does the same thing. They don't believe anything you believe. They deny the existence of heaven. They deny the existence of hell. They deny the efficacy of the blood of Christ to save. They don't believe anything that you believe. But they walk up and down the street. They dress nice like you do. And they hang out these little watchtower to wake tracks. And they say pretty much the same thing. They don't use the same word. They say the same thing. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We're his disciples. We'd like for you to be one. 
Well, I have a question. They don't believe anything like you believe. How are we supposed to know who's telling the truth? Well, you and I know by what saith the Lord. But how's that guy on the inside of the door supposed to know? Just yesterday, you knocked on their door. Today, they knock on their door, said the same thing. How's he supposed to know? Which one's telling the truth? What did Jesus say? By this, by your magnanimous, selfless, others-centered love for one another, shall all men know that you are the true disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a proof of salvation. But it's got to be a pretty good evidence. Do I have love for one another? Question number four, also an evidence, not a proof. Do I love the lost? Do I love the unsaved? Do you know that everybody in the Bible, especially as it clear in the New Testament, whoever got saved, immediately demonstrated a concern to reach someone else for Jesus Christ? John the Baptist won Andrew. Andrew immediately went to his brother and said, Hey, Pete, come on, boy. We found the Messiah. Not a very good witness, but it worked. It brought him to Jesus. In that same chapter, Jesus won Philip to himself. Philip immediately went to where he knew his friend Nathaniel was, his critical friend. And said, Come on, boy, I'm going to introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, we criticize him for calling Jesus the son of Joseph because Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph, though he was the legal son of Joseph. But that's what he meant. He wasn't wrong. But he immediately got concerned. I think of, I think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She got saved. Immediately, her first concern was what? Winning the men that she had sinned with. Half the men in that town got saved because of her testimony. The other half, she couldn't win. She brought them to a soul winner who could, named Jesus. All the way through the Bible. Matthew, the tax collector. You don't know tax collectors could get saved, did you? Matthew got saved, and he immediately held a big dinner. It looks as though he was a little timid about telling them himself. So he held a big dinner, and all of his IRS cronies there. And Jesus. And they got Jesus to tell them how he got saved. Hey, if you're a little embarrassed, if you're a little, you know, I tell people this. If you're timid and it's properly all right, don't be intimidated by your timidity. Well, don't let people go to hell because you're timid. If you're, t- I think I've told you this before. Well, I did to this Saturday men's advance a couple of years ago. If you're timid, I'll tell you what to do. But, but you really want to please the Lord about soul winning, witnessing. Get you some gospel tracks. you got an inside pocket on your coat. That's what it's for. Hide them. Hide them in that pocket. Don't get a big bulk bill. No, hide them. Go down to Walmart. If you go at night, hardly anybody there. I don't even know Walmart's open at night anymore. But walk up and down the aisles. Like you're shopping. I mean, if you're timid, walk up and down the aisles like you're shopping. When you get out an aisle and you're the only one on that aisle, check this way. 
If nobody is coming, check that way. If nobody's coming that way, check again to make sure. That way. Nobody's coming, look that way. If nobody's coming, quickly get a gospel truck out of your pocket. Lay it on a box of cornflakes and run for your life. Before anybody finds out, hey, that's better than nothing, isn't it? At least somebody's going to get the gospel. It's all right to be timid. Just don't let the world go to hell because you're timid. Ah, uh, Philip was timid. Every time you find Philip after John chapter 1, he's bringing somebody to Jesus, but he always, always, always has to go to Andrew to get his help. I'm saying everybody in the Bible ever got saved immediately got concerned about others. I'm worried. I'm really worried. Oh, you got any pills for this? I'm worried. Uh, this crowd says, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. But it's been years since you've given a soul a gospel tract. Or even invited them, tried to get them to come to church with you so they could hear the gospel. Or told them that you got saved. What kind of Christianity is that? If a, fa if a faith is not worth sharing, it's not worth having. We're not just smoking pipe. That's amen. Sign language, where are you? Or another sign language. Amen. ASL, Andrew sign language. Now that's not a proof, but it's a good, pretty good evidence. Uh, Alright, go down to the next question. Also an evidence, not a proof, an evidence. If you doubt your salvation, ask yourself, do I hate sin? Not do I tolerate it. Not do I, you know, Am I, do I gravitate, do I hate it? Do I have the same passionate hatred for sin that God has? Here's, here's scripture for you. Psalm 97, verse 10. Ye that love the Lord, the command is, hate evil. That's not an option. If you love the Lord, you are commanded to hate evil. Hebrews 1, 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. How about Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. There's no such thing as fearing God if you don't hate evil. There's no such thing as a good police officer who doesn't hate lawlessness. There's no such thing as a good medical professional who doesn't hate sickness. There's no such thing as a good teacher or educator who doesn't hate ignorance. There's no such thing as a good Christian who doesn't hate what Jesus hates. Now, I said those are evidences. Do I love the church? Do I love the saints? Do I love the lost? Do I hate sin? And they'll corroborate. They'll help. Proof number one was, how did I get saved to begin with? And proof number two, which is question number six, when I sin, does God chasten me? Now listen to me carefully. When you sin, according to the Bible, God doesn't chasten you immediately. He usually waits to see if you'll bring yourself back before he chastens. First Corinthians I believe it's 11, 31 and 32. says, if we would judge ourselves, God won't have to do it. 
However, if after a period you can sin continually, perpetually, and get by with it, you're not saved. I can prove that to you. Thank you for asking. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 5, that classic passage, lengthy passage on Christian chastening. Hebrews 12, 5. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And here it is. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint without rebuke of him. Now listen to verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth. You know what that word means? You know what a scourge is? That's the Roman canonine tales that Jesus and Paul both got. Every son, he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, I'm glad he didn't say enjoy it. If ye endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Listen to verse 8. But if ye be without chastisement, while all are partakers, then are ye, and the Bible word is bastards, and not sons. And that's not a cuss word. It's an old English word that means you're an orphan. You don't have any parents. It means you're illegitimate. Wait a minute. There's absolute positive biblical proof that if you can persist and continue in sin and God doesn't spank you, you're not saved. I'm not saying, you know, chase you. You sin and get chased on right away. If, if God chased on everybody after, immediately after they got saved, we'd all be walking around with crutches. We'd all be black and blue. But First Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 says it gives you a chance to, you know, reconcile yourself, judge yourself and bring yourself back. But if you don't heed that judging, he said, I will chasten you. And he said, if you can sin per, 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 persistently, and get by with it. You're just not saved. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Well, I have to ask you the question before we pray and plead. Uh, the question is, how'd you do on the test? I hope you wrote it down to help others, but if you take the test yourself, how would you fare? Question one, how did you get saved to begin with? If you didn't come the Bible way, Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. First Peter 2.5, I believe it is, says this, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If you want to come to God, you have to come through Him, through the Son, the only mediator, the Savior. How did you fare? How did I get saved to begin with? When I sin persistently, when I continue and sin, does God take me to the woodshed? It doesn't show us. There's a biblical proof. But then don't ignore the evidence. Do I love the church? Do I love the saints? Do I love the lost? Do I hate sin? Those are not proofs, but they're pretty good corroborating evidence. 
Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Nobody looking. I don't know how to hold the invitation except to say that the, the, the altar is open. If you want to come and find a place to pray, why, uh, at the altar, why, now is the time to do it. Uh, if you want to, you can use your seat as an altar. If you're not saved or not sure that you're saved, Why don't you come? Let us open the Bible. Take just a few minutes of your time to show you clearly, clearly, clearly from the Scripture how to be 100% sure that heaven is your home. You don't have to go through 